All right, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 41 again uh, with me now, please. Genesis chapter 41. So Valerie is worried that I'm not going to be able to find enough in this chapter to preach a full sermon. This is a long chapter for sure, but the thing about this chapter, as you heard as Chris was reading, is that it's, it's mainly just a narrative, and, and it's a narrative most of us know. Um, there's no real hidden theological truths to be found in this chapter. There's no deep doctrinal sections. It's just, just, just a storyline, basically. So what do we say that we don't already know from this chapter? I guess that's the big question. Well, I don't know if I'm going to say anything new to any of you this morning, but we are going to take a little bit different approach to going through this chapter in our study. Because of the length of it, as I've already told you, that's why I had Chris read part of it in the call to worship. I'm going to read the rest of Genesis chapter 41 now. Then after we have a word of prayer, um, we're going to go straight into our conclusions, our, our observations. You know, usually we, we deal with particular verses and we take our time moving down through the past passage and then we get to our conclusions at the conclusion, at the end, right? That's where we make our observations. But that's not going to be the case this morning. The whole sermon is going to be observations, four observations from this entire chapter. So just to let you know, that's going to be our approach. But we need to finish this chapter first. So come back to chapter 41 and go to verse 33. Let's pick up where Chris left off uh, just a few minutes ago. Genesis chapter 41 and verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paniah, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which are in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in all the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain 
as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. In the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. The seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll make some conclusions from all that we've just heard. Father, we're here this morning um, to worship you and your son, Jesus Christ. Hopefully, you've heard that from us already. Hopefully, as you've looked into our hearts and our minds to see where our, our singing was coming from and, and our prayers and, and even our conversations with each other, what you saw was a group of people who are convinced about you, convinced that you are the Lord God Almighty, that your Son is the one and only Redeemer to be King of kings and Lord of lords someday. And we're here because we not only believe those facts, we love you. We trust you. We want to know more about you. We want to be able to enjoy you as much as is possible. And we want you to be praised and glorified among ourselves, but also outside this building, in our state, in our country, across this world. We want you to get what you deserve for who you are and for what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. We know you intend all the glory to be directed to him. And so that's what we want this morning. Even as we come to Genesis chapter 42, we didn't hear Jesus Christ mentioned anywhere in this chapter. And yet we've learned from you that even though we don't see his name, you're thinking about him. And all that you are doing in every chapter and every verse, as you, as you explain to us what's been going on through history, we know that you are doing it for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. It's all this plan. It's all this, this roadmap. It's all this process to bring things to culmination in and around and through your son, Jesus Christ. So having said that, Father, I pray that you will work in all of our hearts this morning to take our minds to Jesus Christ. I pray that this look at Joseph will leave us fascinated with, overwhelmed by, infatuated with, obsessed with your son, Jesus Christ. And if we get there, if we accomplish that, it will be a success. So through your Holy Spirit, make that happen. Do more than we're expecting. Change lives this morning. Draw people to your son, Jesus Christ. And we will give you all the praise for it. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So if you are taking notes this morning, uh, I'm going to put um, a short outline up here on the screen and on the back of your bulletin, you have a place to write down some notes if you choose to do that. But basically what we're going to do from this point forward is we're going to look at four conclusions from Genesis chapter 41. Our whole, our whole study is going to be built on and around those four conclusions or observations. So here's the first one. Let me put it up here for you. And this is what will get us started into our study. And it is, don't put your hope in men. 
Now, we've been seeing this for quite some time. It's not that it popped up in Genesis chapter 41 all of a sudden. And in fact, the comments I'm going to make largely is me reaching back to what we saw last week from Genesis chapter 40. But our conclusion is don't put your hope in men. Now, Joseph, if you, if you remember last week, Joseph well, it really was the primary one who brought relief, uh, hope, peace to the butler. How did he do that? When he gave him that very promising interpretation after the butler shared his dream, so did the baker, but after the butler shared his dream and Joseph gave him the interpretation for his dream, that interpretation was very promising. I'm sure, absolutely convinced, that the butler's last three days in that prison were better than all the days that he had had already before in the prison. Because after Joseph's interpretation, there was a glimmer of hope for the butler. Ah, you know, there's no guarantee at that point that it was going to happen, but there was a, there was a promise, there was, there was a glimmer of hope. I mean, maybe this all, this, this whole bad dream of my life is about to end in the next three days. Then also, I'm sure there was a wave of great joy that came over the butler when that interpretation came true. I mean, he not only was released from prison, but he was put right back in his old spot, his old position, right beside Pharaoh, serving the wine and the food to Pharaoh at every meal for him and his family and for his guests. Well, Joseph was like a key component in that monumental turnaround for the butler. Butler was in prison, then butler was out of prison, back with Pharaoh, and right in the middle of that, like, like the hinge that, that it all swung on, was Joseph. I mean, Joseph genuinely cared about the butler, didn't he? I mean, that was perfectly obvious when we read the chapter last week. Joseph served the butler. He tried to, to help him. Joseph came to the butler like, like the bearer of great news to this man. And all that Joseph asked in return was what? Was, remember me. When you get out of here, remember me. Use your position to try to help me get out of this place. That's all that Joseph asked of the butler. And that's not, a, that's not a big ask, is it? I mean, that's not too much to expect for what Joseph had done for the butler. But if you'll glance back to that, at the last verse of chapter 40, verse 23, we saw, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, why did he forget him? I personally don't think there, that was an intentional thing. I don't think the butler left prison saying, forget that, forget that guy. I got what I wanted from him. I got what I needed. I'm not going to say a word, another word about him. No, no more contact with him after this. I, I, don't, I don't get that from the butler. I don't think there was any evidence here of, of some deliberate malicious scheme to, to keep Joseph locked up after the butler got out. I'm pretty sure that after the butler got out of prison, he just wanted to erase all memories of what had just happened to him. And it just so happened Joseph was a part of what just happened to him. Even though it was a good part of it, still, it's like reach back, all that just took place in the last weeks, months, I'm going to erase it all, and Joseph was kind of like swept out with the trash of the butler's past life. I'm sure also that once the butler got back to Pharaoh, he got very busy once again. Remember, that was his life. Service to the king was what he was devoted to. It was 24-7, so he got right back in the saddle, and he was so busy. That's probably why he didn't remember Joseph. I think it was all an honest mistake. But that's my point here with point number one. Men, makes, men make mistakes. 
We do, right? We see possibilities for ourselves in other people. Their abilities, their positions that they might have, promises that they make to us. We look at other people and we say, there's potential in them for me. There's potential there that they can do me great good. And so we, we are drawn, we tend to put stock in the abilities and the promises and the positions of other people. But we have to remember, other people are just other people. They're not absolutely dependable, are they? We aren't. I keep saying they, but we aren't absolutely dependable because we aren't absolutely sovereign. And we aren't all-powerful. And we aren't omniscient. We're not even mentally perfected yet. Like the butler, again, I don't think he forgot Joseph on purpose. He just was able to forget. He was able to get into the, the, the routine of, of daily work and, you know, last week is gone. Ask my wife. That happens all the time for me because I'm not mentally perfected yet. I haven't gotten to a place where I hold on to everything. Nothing escapes. If I'm supposed to remember something, I do it. No, that's not me, and that's not you either. There is only one who won't fail us, and that is the one who is absolutely sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient and perfected in absolutely every way. So don't place too much hope in other people, and don't get overly disappointed and, and bitter when they fail you. And, and, and I say when they fail you, not if they fail you. They will. We will fail others as well, just like the butler failed Joseph. So first, first conclusion here is, is very obvious. We've all experienced this ourselves, but Joseph and this butler bring it out for us once again. Let me give you another practical conclusion. Well, I didn't. You're going to have to reverse these because I reversed my notes last night. So number three is actually number two. Number two is actually number three. Number four is where it's supposed to be, and so is number one. You good with that? Okay. Look at number three. The best trials aren't short ones. Again, you you follow chapter 41 and what came before this, and you, you must come to the conclusion that the best trials aren't short ones. Now, when we get to chapter 41, especially the the latter part of chapter 41, when we see Joseph standing before Pharaoh and and getting all this privilege, we're happy for Joseph, aren't we? We should be. I mean, if anybody deserves a break, isn't it Joseph? If anybody deserves a little happiness in his life, if if anybody deserved some, some great blessings, it was Joseph. I mean, remember, this is a guy who was sold by his brothers when he was a teenager, And then after that, he was sold again by the people who had bought him from his brothers. He was sold again. And then he was forced into servitude down in Egypt. Then he was falsely accused of attempted rape. Then he was wrongly imprisoned. Then he was forgotten by the butler for two years. I mean, this is quite a story. This is quite an experience for Joseph. And you think, well, yeah, he finally deserves something good in his life. Now, you think about Joseph's life and what I just summarized very quickly. That would have been excruciating if all that stuff had just covered six months, right? I mean, start to finish, from the time his brothers sold him to the time Pharaoh brought him out of prison, all that he experienced, even if that had taken just six months, that would have been an excruciating time period. You know how long it actually took? We've got one piece of the puzzle. I read it to you a second ago. How old was Joseph when Pharaoh 
when he stood before Pharaoh. Remember? 30. 30 years old at that point. You remember how old he was when his brothers sold him out in that field to the Ishmaelite traders who went by? He was 17. Do the math. 13 years. 13 years, folks. Where were you 13 years ago? What'd you look like 13 years ago? I had hair. <clears throat> how much has happened in your life in the last 13 years? How much has happened in the world in the last 13 years? It's a long time, isn't it? Now, now think of that in light of what we know James said, and those of you who come on Wednesday nights will remember this very well, but remember one of the, the most well-known exhortations from the book of James, right at the beginning of the letter, James says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So basically James is saying, celebrate your trials. No matter what kind of trial it is, you should celebrate that trial because of what you know, what you know God is doing with the trial. Because you realize God is doing things with that trial that wouldn't be done in your life otherwise, in any other way. And we learned on Wednesday nights what some of those things are that God does with these various kinds of trials. I mean, God uses trials to test our faith. Not so that he can find the answer, not so that he can figure out whether we believe and how much we believe. He knows. He's omniscient. He knows everything. But trials give us a test of our faith. And trials show us, do we believe? What do we believe? Who do we believe in? How strongly do we believe in, in that one? The trials bring this out for us. Trials teach us things that we need to know about ourselves and about other people, and about God. Once again, things that we can't learn any other way but going through that trial. Trials take away things and people that aren't good for us. Things and people that have been holding us back and, and been burdens on our shoulders and bad influences in our life that we won't cut off. We refuse to do it. But through the trials, God does it for us very, very lovingly. Trials help us to empathize with other people who are going through severe circumstances too. Now I can empathize. Oh yeah, I've been there and done that. I know what you're going through. Trials force us to lean on God in that experience and then experience his grace in forms that we have not experienced before. We could go on and on with this list. The point is this. We come out the other side of the trials better than before. That's what James is saying. So celebrate your trials but 13 years? I mean, again, think about that. 13 nonstop, unbroken years of trials. 13 years as someone's slave. 13 years, the victim of human trafficking. Let's put it in today's language. 13 years of false incarceration. He didn't belong in prison. He hadn't done anything wrong, but he gets stuck in prison Injustice was done. That was Joseph's trial. 13 years of that. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But the fact is, God wanted it for Joseph. This was not an accident. Joseph was not a victim. God wanted 13 years of trials for Joseph. And as, and as hard as it was, as seemingly unfair as it was, we just got to see Joseph after the trial, didn't we? 
after that 13 years of excruciating trials, Joseph is now second most powerful man in all of Egypt. All of the wealth of the nation is now at Joseph's disposal. He can use it for his own personal use and enjoyment any way he wants to do that. Joseph is now in charge of all the economic affairs of the kingdom of Egypt, all of them. He's even in charge of the king's own family at this point in time. And we have to ask ourselves the obvious question, how did God get him there? How did God prepare Joseph for that huge role? And the answer is, with that 13-year trial. With that 13-year trial, God worked for Joseph and on Joseph through the whole thing, not in spite of the whole thing, with the whole thing, through the whole thing. We, we, we've read it several times. God was with Joseph everywhere he went in that 13 years and through everything that happened, no matter who owned him, no matter who imprisoned him, no matter who was with him in Potiphar's house, against him in Potiphar's house, with him in the prison, against him in the prison, God was with Joseph all the time, and God made him prosper in everything that he did in those 13 years. God upheld and strengthened his faith during those 13 years. Even when Joseph's future was unclear, he's giving interpretations to other people that's telling them exactly what their future looks like. He didn't have any dreams in prison. No one came to him and said, in three days, this is what's going to happen for your benefit. Joseph had none of that. Since his dreams way back when he was a, a, a young teenager, he has had no indication of what, what his future holds for him. And yet, while he was in the midst of that 13 years, God is up, upholding and strengthening his faith to be able to trust God no matter what his future looked like. God humbled him during those 13 years. God taught him to serve other people when he was being so mistreated by other people. So again, all of this tells us God used the trial. God used that long hardship to make Joseph into the man that everyone practically in the world in that day came to admire and depend on for the next 14 years after that. And folks, God is still working that way for his people today through trials. Every time I'm with Alonzo and Amalia, I'm, I'm amazed. I really am. I'm stunned. I'm floored because they've managed to endure the hardest 17 months I've ever witnessed anyone go through. You know, Joseph had 13 years. I get that, but I wasn't there to watch it in Joseph. With Amalia, with Alonzo and Amalia, we've been there with them for 17 months now and watched them endure just it's not a different trial, it's the same trial with new phases, just one on top of the other with, with seemingly no let-up whatsoever and no end in sight at this point in time. And I'm amazed at how they've endured that 17 months. But I'm also amazed because of what this trial has done for them. They, they know and appreciate God in a way that's very special, in, in a way that they didn't before all of this started. And it's a way that causes them not only to submit to God, but also to trust him fully and to praise him every chance they get, even when they don't know what tomorrow holds, even when they don't know if this trial is going to end, even if they don't know if Alonzo is going to come out of this alive, they still are trusting God and praising God no matter what each day holds for them. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what we're learning through Genesis chapter 41 and Joseph's life. 
with the trials, God shows people his glory in an unusual way. With the trials, not in spite of them. So don't wish for no trials in your life. Don't wish for short trials in your life. Don't try to shorten your trials when they come. That's the first thing we do, right? We, we look for the escape hatch. We look for a way out. We start praying, God, stop this. Take this away. Remove me from this situation. Don't do that. Don't look for a detour. Don't look for a way out. And don't pray for shortened trials. Believe that God is with you in those trials and that they are for your spiritual and eternal good. And that the longer they last, the more good God is producing in you and through you for the good of others. Number three, the best trials aren't the short ones, okay? Now, number really number three, which is number two on the screen, notice the absolute sovereignty of God. Once again, this is not a new subject. This won't be the first time we've seen this, but once again on a new page, we see the absolute sovereignty of God. And remember... Joseph told the butler and the baker that interpretations belong to God. We saw that last week when he came and found them in prison, very sad one morning, and they, he asked why, and they said, oh, we've had these dreams, and, and we don't know what they mean, and we can't find anybody to tell us what they mean, and, and we're just so upset, we're so bothered, we're so worried by this, and Joseph basically said, don't, don't fear, interpretations belong to God. And I said last week, most of our dreams, at least in my life, I'll just speak for me, most of my dreams are just kind of like this out-of-control mixture of, of experiences that I've had and thoughts in my mind and people that I know and desires that I have and fears that I have, and, and they all get mixed together while I'm asleep. And there's no interpretation for all of that because there's no message coming from someone else. It's not like someone's sending a message to me through my dreams, and so there is an interpretation. It's just the mess of my subconscious while, while I'm asleep, and you're probably the same way. But where there is an interpretation of a dream by God, why is that? Because the dream came from God. And Joseph makes that very clear in his explanation to Pharaoh here. Look back at verse 25 with me again. They bring Joseph out of the, the prison, and he gets all cleaned up and comes before the king, and, and the king tells Joseph his dreams. And, and in verse 25, here's how Joseph responds to him. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Okay, so two things stand out here. God is the one who gave Pharaoh the dreams, and that's why God can give him the interpretations through Joseph. It's obvious from what Joseph told Pharaoh right here. But Joseph is saying more here. There's more to, to what's behind Joseph's statement. God is able to give the dream because the dream is what God is about to do. So God can give the interpretation because God, God gave the dream. But God can give the dream because the dream is telling what God is about to do. So understand when you read chapter 40 and chapter 41, this is not just some great display of divine guesswork by God. So I'm just going to predict the future. and I'm divine, so I'm a better predictor than anybody else, and I'll give my prediction to Joseph, and he can pass it along to these other people after their dreams. That's not what's happening here. This is not even a demonstration of the omniscience of God. 
That's not what's going on here either. It's not like God is looking into his crystal ball to see future events, and then he passes along his his findings, what he saw, to Joseph. No. What we're hearing from Joseph and what we're seeing over and over again here is that God is in charge of the future. He's already laid it all out. He's just using the dreams and the interpretations to tell people what he's about to do. And look how far he goes here to demonstrate his complete control, absolute sovereignty. Look at verse 32 with me. Verse 32. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, not the interpretation, the dream, because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. So again, as you heard Chris read this morning uh, in our call to worship, there wasn't just one dream given to Pharaoh. He got two dreams, didn't he? They had different characters, different, different pictures, different symbols, but it was just one and the same message. It was God saying, here's what I'm about to do in Egypt. Okay? Now, I wonder if when Joseph was explaining this to Pharaoh, if Joseph had a major flashback moment himself, light bulb, I'm telling Pharaoh what's happening to him and why. God doesn't just give one dream. He gives two dreams just so you know for sure. This wasn't just a mistake. This wasn't just the result of my pizza last night. This is really God giving the dream about what he's about to do. Pharaoh, this is what just happened to you. Oh, wait a second. I I remember something from my own life. You remember something from, from Joseph's life? We know Joseph is a dream interpreter, right? But Joseph was also a dreamer, if you recall. Joseph had dreams of his own. And I wonder if in this discussion, Joseph went back in his mind to those dreams that he had when he was a child. Dreams, plural, not just one. Remember that? He had that one dream that his brother's sheaves bowed down to his sheaf. He had another dream where the sun and the moon and the stars all bowed down to him. Not one dream, but two dreams. Different characters, once again, just like Pharaoh, different characters in Joseph's dreams, but the same message. God giving him dreams to show what had been established by God. God saying to Joseph, this is what will shortly come to pass. I have established what I am about to do in your life. And God started doing it right away, right after those dreams that he gave to Joseph. Remember that? By now, when we get to chapter 42, 41, Joseph's family is about to submit to his authority in Egypt. And just as God ordained and just as God revealed in those two dreams, just like Pharaoh's two dreams, God's going to carry out everything that he was promising in Joseph's dreams and in Pharaoh's dreams all at the same time. God is absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign over the the planning of the events. He's sovereign over the, the outcome of the events. He's sovereign over any dreams that he gives about them and any interpretations that he gives about them. God does it. Did it for Joseph doing it with Pharaoh as well. And I think we see even more work by God here to put Joseph in that place of authority, just as he had shown in his dreams many, many years ago. Look at verses 33 through 36 again with me, if you will. Verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man 
and set him over the land of Egypt. This is Joseph giving advice to Pharaoh. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the next seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. What is that? That is Joseph's advice to Pharaoh on how to handle what God has just told him is coming in his dream. You're going to have seven bad, you're going to have seven great years, have seven bad years. You need to store up something during the good years so that it'll be a reserve to be used during the bad years. That is all Joseph's advice to King Pharaoh. That's a very wise, practical plan, is it not? I would go as far as to say that was brilliant counsel for Joseph to give to the king. But the question is, where did that come from? Where did Joseph get this? Did that just come from Joseph's wisdom that he gained over so many years of being around good managers like Potiphar? I mean, Potiphar was way up with King Pharaoh, and Joseph served him, so he had to learn something, right? Is this advice to Pharaoh something he just picked up from Potiphar? You know, good uh, business management, good, good um, planning for the future, those kinds of skills that he learned from somebody else during his time? Or did, did Joseph develop this kind of wisdom through experience being in prison and taking care of other people for, for years in the prison? You know, the prison keeper was out fishing every day while Joseph was in charge of the other inmates. Did Joseph just learn how to be a great business manager and planner by that experience himself? Let me point something else out to you as well. Look at verse 37 and notice the decision that Pharaoh made after Joseph gave him that advice. Verse 37. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Not just Pharaoh, but, but even his servants thought that sounded great. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this? A man in whom is the Spirit of God? This is being spoken by a man who worships many gods, many idols. Okay. Then Pharaoh said, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as deserving and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck and had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Does that strike you as strange? I mean, no king in his right mind would give so much responsibility and so much authority to a lowly Hebrew, Hebrew sheep farmer who yesterday was in prison accused of rape. What king in his right mind would make a decision like that? And I mean, let's just face it. All Joseph did would, was just give to Pharaoh a supposed interpretation for his dream. Anybody can make up anything and say, that's the interpretation of your dream, right? No one knew yet whether Joseph got it right. No one could say, oh, well, he was right. He was dead spot on. He got every detail right. No, none of this has happened yet. So there's no proof that Joseph knew what he was talking about or, or that he was for, for real. 
Again, those dreams might have just been his mind, just making up weird stuff while he was asleep and, and had no control of his thoughts. But even if it was great advice from Joseph, surely Pharaoh had other men to put in that spot, right? The king certainly has other um, servants, other officers who have served him for years or decades in very important roles and have proved that they are trustworthy and that they are wise and they're very capable. And here you're making a plan for the future of your kingdom for the next 14 years. And you're not going to pick one of those guys. You're going to pick this lowly Hebrew sheep farmer that just got out of prison today. Makes no sense whatsoever, does it? Pharaoh is placing all the resources of Egypt at, at Joseph's disposal. He's putting his whole personal household, even his own family members, under Joseph's authority. His whole kingdom is under Joseph. He's entrusting the fate of his nation for the foreseeable future to this young Hebrew slave, Joseph. Why would he do that? Don't just be amazed that he did it. Ask the question, why? Why in the world would he make that decision? And I am convinced primarily by what Pharaoh says here, that both Joseph's wise advice to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's crazy decision for Joseph were two more results of God's absolute sovereignty. Two more displays, two more illustrations that God is in charge of everything and God was bringing to pass here exactly what God had already ordained to come to pass. Now remember... Remember even back before Joseph, remember what God had promised to Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham, I'll turn your descendants into a great nation like the stars that you see up in the sky right now. You won't be able to count all of them. I'm going to do that for your descendants and they will all be strangers for a time in a land that is not theirs. And again, remember the two dreams that Joseph had had way back when he was a kid Two dreams that showed that basically his whole family was going to end up bowing down to him. Now here we are in Genesis chapter 41, and notice what we're seeing. Both the advice that Joseph gave to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's decision after that advice, his decision to put Joseph in charge of the entire kingdom, what is that? That is God giving Joseph that idea, and that is God convincing Pharaoh to choose Joseph and put him in the position to bring that covenant promise and the dreams that Joseph had way back when, all of that to pass in the upcoming years. What's my point? My point is number two. God is absolutely sovereign. He plans the events of this world. He gives dreams about the events, sometimes like here, interpretations of those dreams. He controls the events. He moves people. He works in minds to bring everything to pass just as he has ordered and just as he has revealed. God is absolutely sovereign. And let me point out one more thing on this before we move to the last point, point number four. The butler forgot about Joseph for two years. Two years. Then he remembered him, okay? Why not just one year later? Why not five years later? Answer? Because the thing that triggered the butler's memory was what? The dream that Pharaoh was given. 
Where did that dream come from? It came from God. God gave the dream. So who was the one responsible for the butler remembering Joseph and mentioning him to Pharaoh? God was responsible for all of that. And so you ask the question, well, well, why then? Why after two years? Why not a year after the butler got out of prison? Why not four years after the butler got out of prison? Because God was in charge of this. God was working things out according to the counsel of his own will. God had already laid out the events of the future. When the plenty years were going to start, when the famine years were going to start, God gave the dream to Pharaoh because that's when he wanted the butler to remember Joseph so that Joseph came out of prison and came to Pharaoh and was put in that spot not a year early, not three years late, but when the fullness of time had come, the exact time when Joseph was needed to do what God wanted him to do there. God, once again, demonstrating his absolute sovereignty, working all things according to the counsel of his will for the good of his people and for the good of many others. And all of this, folks, is to the praise of his glory. When we say God is absolutely sovereign, we should stand in awe. We should stop everything else we are doing and just gaze across that vast gulf that separates him from us. And we can't explain God's sovereignty. We can't, you know, write a book with enough details for our small little finite non-sovereign minds to understand how he plans everything about the future and then carries it all out. We can't understand that, but it's true. We're seeing it happen again right here. And our response to that is just to be to stand and say, wow. What a God, the only God. There is no other, and he deserves to be worshipped every day for all of eternity just for that fact about him. God is absolutely sovereign. Now, number four, let me put it up here. This is our last point that we'll look at this morning, and that is what I like to see everywhere, and I think you do see it everywhere to some degree, and that's the fact that Joseph, this man, Joseph, is another picture of Christ. Now, we can't go through all of this this morning. We don't have time for that. But let me, let me try to lay this out for you in a way that you can see it here so vividly as I think I have this past week. Think about Joseph again, okay? Joseph was the favored son of his father, wasn't he? I mean, Jacob's love for Joseph was different than his love for any of the other kids. Those other 11 sons, Dinah the daughter. I mean, what Jacob felt for Joseph was almost like Joseph was his only child. He loved him to that degree, differently and deeper than all of his other children. But even though Jacob loved his son, loved Joseph that much, God sent Joseph into 13 years of hardship, servitude to other people, injustice, treated unfairly over and over again. Think about this too. Joseph's own brothers, well, they didn't believe him. They didn't believe that he should be so special. They didn't believe that his dreams made him any better than the rest of them. They were jealous of him. They rejected him and even plotted to kill their own brother. Think about this too about Joseph. People that Joseph served along the way did good things for them, like the butler, just went off and forgot about him. It's like it never happened. A month after the butler got out of prison, he wasn't thinking about Joseph. 
He didn't have fond memories of Joseph. He wasn't telling people about this, this kid in prison who, who treated him so well and served him every day and interpreted his, his dream. No, none of that. Just went off and forgot about him after Joseph had served him so well. Joseph endured many years of humiliation and suffering under the will of God. Why? All to put Joseph in the perfect position at the perfect time to do something to save many people from death, right? Many people, his own family, the children of Israel, the Egyptians, and people from many other surrounding nations as well. That's the, that's the, the summary of the life of Joseph. Sound familiar to you? Recognize any details there in, in, in someone else? On Wednesday nights now, we are studying the four servant songs in, in the book of Isaiah. I, I encourage all of you to come on Wednesday nights. It's, it's already good, and it's probably going to get even better as we go week by week. But in the first one, in Isaiah chapter 42, God the Father says his soul delights in the servant, in his son. His soul delights in God the Son. In other words, no one, gave the father more pleasure than his son. The father's love for his son is infinite. We can't even start to describe it. We can't start to appreciate it. Think about the person on this planet that you love more than anyone else, and maybe it's your child, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's another family member. Think about the person that you have more love for than anybody else, and you're not even scratching the surface of God's love for his son, father for the son. Yet, The father sent his son into a life of humility and humiliation, false accusations, injustice, suffering. Jesus' own brothers in his own family and his nation didn't believe him either, did they? They were jealous of him. They rejected him. They plotted to kill him too, didn't they? Many people that Jesus served, think about that. How many people do you think Jesus healed in his three years of public ministry on this earth? How many sick people were not sick anymore? How many handicapped people were suddenly walking who had never walked before? How many people had demons cast out of them when demons had ruled their lives for for years before? How many people did Jesus raise from the dead? And yet how many of those people that Jesus served so graciously and mercifully and faithfully went off and forgot all about him? They didn't follow him after that. They didn't go around bragging on him. They didn't come back and say, I've left everything else because I think you're Messiah and I'm going to walk behind you. They didn't serve him. They didn't obey him. They didn't praise and and worship him, did they? But all of that was to put Jesus in the perfect position at the perfect time. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son into this world as a man. The fullness of time. When there's nothing else left on God's agenda to be done before this took place. Perfect position in the perfect time to do what? To save many people from death. Jewish people, children of Israel, Egyptian people, people from all the other nations on the face of the earth. You see, Joseph was a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, God's servant for the salvation of others 1,700 years later. That's the difference between Joseph and when Jesus came. 1,700 years, God's using Joseph as a beautiful picture 
of what was coming after him 1,700 years later. Who was coming after him? But as is always the case, Jesus is the greater Joseph. And I want you to think about some comparisons. You've already written those things down. I want to put some other things up here on the screen for you. I want to give you just a few comparisons as we wrap this up between Joseph, the servant of others, the servant of God for the salvation of others, and Jesus, the servant of God for the salvation of others. We'll put them up here. Joseph, Jesus, Joseph, Jesus. Here's the first. Joseph suffered how long? 13 years. 13 years. 13 years of hardship to get to that place where he would be able to save others from death. Nearly half of Joseph's life, again, I didn't say that earlier, but that'll put it in perspective for you as well. Think about how old you are and then think half of your life is spent in that kind of a trial, that kind of hardship. That was Joseph. Amazing. 13 years to get to that spot where he could save many others alive. What about Jesus? Over 30 years. Jesus suffered over 30 years. Jesus suffered his entire life to get to that spot to be able to save many others alive. Jesus is the greater Joseph. Let me give you another example of this. Second thing I'll bring out is this. Joseph, in a position of privilege, in a position of exaltation, in a position of authority, saved others. That's where he was. Pharaoh had already put the chain around his neck, ring on his finger, stuck him on the chariot. You're riding all over Egypt and everybody bows to you. Everybody does exactly what you say. Nobody has the right to deny you service, to disobey you. You are second in charge of all of Egypt. That's where Joseph was when he was able to save many other people. What about Jesus? Think about the contrast here. I say comparisons, but this is almost like a contrast. Jesus saved many others before he was exalted. Jesus saved many others from the lowest position possible as a convicted criminal. And not convicted for crimes of his own, but charged with the guilt of all of his people, charged with guilt that was not his, and condemned to a penalty that he had not earned and then going on to die to free his people from the same, a penalty that we had earned. That's how Jesus saved. And not just how he was prepared to save, that's how he saved. Jesus is the greater Joseph. Here's something else. Joseph came up with a great plan, didn't he? And evidently carried it out very well. He he executed that plan as well as you could expect any human being to execute such a, a, a magnificent plan. But his plan and his management saved many people from what kind of death? Physical death. Physical death. If Joseph hadn't done what he did, all those people would have run out of food in the famine and they would have starved to death. Joseph provided food for them to survive a little bit longer, yet they had to keep coming back to him for more, didn't they? I mean, Joseph's own brothers, we're going to get to this in the next couple of chapters, Joseph's own brothers had to come back to him again, came and got something, but then had to come back again because they ran out of what they got from Joseph the first time. The salvation that Joseph provided for other people was physical, and it was only temporary. 
But what about Jesus? Jesus saved people from eternal death, didn't he? If Jesus hadn't done what he did, we would have borne our own guilt and been condemned to eternal death, which means separated from God and his life forever and ever and ever and ever. What we got through Jesus' death lasts forever. It's called eternal life. We will know God in a reconciled relationship. We will enjoy life as God's children forever, never to be separated from him because of what Jesus did to save many people alive. Jesus is the greater Joseph. But there's one last thing I want to show you from the text, another comparison that shows how superior Jesus is as the Savior compared to to Joseph and how great he was at what he did at this moment in time. Look at verse 53 with me, if you will. Let's go back there one more time. Verse 53. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt, so all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands. Again, where would these people, so many people, have been if it weren't for Joseph? What Joseph did spared the lives of many, many people from all nations. Joseph's plan, Joseph's execution of his plan meant grain when no one could grow anything for years. That's all great, isn't it? But did you notice what we just read about that grain? Wasn't free, was it? Grain wasn't free. Joseph sold grain to the Egyptians. All countries came to Joseph to buy grain. What Joseph did was wonderful. There's no question about that. It was wonderful for the world, but it came at a price to those people. It cost those who benefited from it. I assume if you had nothing, you could get nothing from Joseph. I mean, they had grain bins full of grain. You go to Egypt, you still had to come up with money. You had to be able to purchase that that grain. So if you had nothing, I assume you could get nothing from Joseph at that point in time. But what about Jesus? What about his work of salvation? Again, infinitely better than Joseph's. Let me draw your attention to a verse. You don't need to turn there. Right at the beginning of the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is speaking to a bunch of people up on the mountain, and he's talking about who the happy people are. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. These are people who are favored, and because of that, they are happy people. First on the list, Jesus says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what poor in spirit means? It means spiritually bankrupt. It's literally who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about people who have nothing spiritually, nothing that they can bring to the table to get what they need from God, and yet somehow they end up in the kingdom of heaven. They end up in that eternal kingdom where Christ is king and where his people reign with him. It's amazing, isn't it? 
I mean, no wonder they're happy, blessed. Happy are the poor in spirit, for they end up in the kingdom of heaven. Sure they are. Wouldn't they be? You've got nothing and you end up with everything? Put a finger in Genesis chapter 41. Turn over with me very quickly to Isaiah chapter 55. Because there's, there's another invitation by God here that's, that's just as astounding. Isaiah chapter 55. In fact, you don't have to come back to Genesis chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 55. You'll recognize these verses probably. The verse, first two verses of this chapter. Isaiah says to the people of Judah, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. So here again, just like Jesus was implying in the Beatitudes, God is saying that people can come to him with nothing, with no spiritual capital, no works or obedience that's good enough, no sentence served already, nothing to impress God or satisfy God or earn God's blessings, and they can leave as if they had bought bread and milk. Necessities, right? But even more than that, wine, something to delight their souls, and all of that in abundance. How does that happen when these people have nothing? You go to the grocery store right now, and you can have all you want, but you've got to buy it. You've got to have something to get something, right? These are promises from Jesus and promises from God through the prophet Isaiah that you come with nothing and you leave with everything. Is that not extraordinary? Is that not absolutely amazing? But you have to ask the question, how? Because it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Things don't work that way in, in this life, on this earth. How does it happen? And the answer is very simple. Through the greater Joseph, Jesus. If you go back two, two chapters, go back to Isaiah chapter 53 with me. And God has already explained to the people of Judas, Judah how this takes place. Chapter 53, look at verse 10. I like to read the whole chapter, but I'm not going to do that to you. Isaiah chapter 53, look at verse 10. How do people with nothing end up with everything? It says this, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased Jehovah to bruise his son. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. How is it that people with nothing come to God and end up with everything? And the answer is because the father made his son's soul an offering for sin. The father sent his son to that life of humiliation and betrayal and injustice and suffering and death so that he could buy all that we need and all that we desire, which is life for our soul, eternal life, and that in abundance. As we read in the New Testament, Jesus was the ransom. 
He was the purchase price. He spent his own life. He lived to die to pay what was owed by his people to be freed from sin and death and from God's law and his wrath. And the father made it very clear, just as we read here, he shall be satisfied. The father made it very clear that Jesus' payment for us satisfied every one of God's demands. That he had paid in full what was owed by his people to get what they need. How did he show that? By raising him from the dead. Payment ended. Jesus was dying to pay to set us free, to pay to buy eternal life for us. Father raised him from the dead. Just to say, payment met. Everything owed has been paid. I am satisfied. So those who come to God in faith don't have to buy anything from him. They just receive what he's already bought for them through Jesus Christ. You see the difference? Joseph sold to save people. Jesus spent himself for dying people. So let me ask you this as we close. After seeing all of this and hearing all of this, can you look at Joseph and see the greater Joseph, Jesus? Do you appreciate the sovereignty of God that put the Son in such a long, hard trial to buy your salvation? What does that do to you? Does it leave you humbled? Does it leave you speechless? Does it leave you in awe? Does it leave you filled with gratitude and praise to both the Father and the Son? Is it changing you? Honestly, when you look at Jesus, the greater Joseph, is what you see in him changing you, changing your desires, changing your actions, so that you want and try to give Jesus everything that he desires, everything that he deserves, everything that he demands? Even if that means trials? Even if that means hard trials? Even if that means long trials? Even if he said 13 years of trials? You love him that much because of what you see in him as the greater Joseph? Maybe you've come here this morning and you've, you've never gone to the greater Joseph for what you need to survive. It hasn't happened yet. Think about this, and we didn't talk about this, but all that Joseph planned and carried out to save people in that famine, it did no good to those who didn't think the famine was that bad. Or those who thought they weren't starving. Or those who thought they could wait it out to the end. It'll get bad, but we can make it all the way to the end. Or those who thought they had a way to go ahead and plant and grow and harvest, even in the middle of that famine. Everything that Joseph did to save many people alive would do those people no good whatsoever. The only people who got grain from Joseph were those who believed they wouldn't survive without it. The same goes with Jesus. The only people who get the spiritual bread and milk and wine that he purchased are those who believe that they will die eternally without it and that they have nothing of their own with which to buy it. So they come. They come humble. They come desperate. They come empty-handed 
They come begging and trusting the Father to give them what Jesus already bought for dying sinners. They come poor in spirit, and they get it. They get it all. They get the bread, they get the milk, they get the wine, they get what they need and what they desire for their soul, and they get it in abundance, and they get it forever and ever. And I just ask you as we close, is that what you're thinking and feeling right now? And if so, my exhortation to you is come to God that way. Just come to God that way and delight your soul in abundance now and forever. And no matter who you are, worship Jesus, the infinitely better Joseph. Let's pray. Father, we, we are just left at the same place every time we spend time in your word. We are left in awe of you because it is clear you are absolutely sovereign. And our flesh, our human sinful corrupted flesh cringes at that. We can't stand the thoughts that someone is in control of everything, planning and executing his plan just as he, he wants to, working according to the counsel of his own will, not listening to my will, not taking into account what I would like to see happen, just ruling over everything. Our flesh recoils at that. But that's not because you're wrong. It's because we're wrong. It's because we're sinful and rebellious. It's because we seek to be independent, and not just independent, we seek to be God of our own world. We naturally want to call the shots over our own little kingdom. When not only is that foolish, but it is wicked. It is idolatrous, trying to put ourselves in the place of God, but it is the height of evil. It makes us your enemies. So I thank you for your word, which on page after page after page, makes it very, very clear that you are absolutely sovereign. You are eternal. You are divine. You always have been, always will be the only God. You created everything else. It is your right to rule over everything and bring things to pass exactly how you want it to be. You're absolutely sovereign. But every page of Scripture also tells us that you are righteous. You're right. You don't do wrong things. You don't make mistakes. And you are good. You're not inherently evil. You don't seek out, you don't set out to, to, to do bad things to people who don't deserve it. You are good. And so when we combine those three things that you are absolutely sovereign and you are righteous and you are good, why wouldn't we be in all of you? Why wouldn't we worship you? Why wouldn't we trust what you say? And what you say is, you have sent your own son, like a Joseph, but infinitely better. You have sent your own son into 30 years of excruciating humili humility and humiliation and, and injustice and suffering and death to buy salvation for your enemies. Salvation in the form of everything we need and everything we could ever desire for all of eternity in abundance. Why wouldn't we believe you when you say that? Why wouldn't we believe you when we have Christ laid out for us in the scriptures and who he was and what he said and what he did? Why wouldn't we believe that? We know you raised him from the dead on the third day just like you promised to do. Why wouldn't we believe that? Well, Father, I pray, I hope, everyone in here does believe that. And if not, I pray that you would do a work this morning 
having seen the greater Joseph, having seen where salvation comes to those who have nothing with which to buy it, that it comes through Jesus, that they would run to Jesus, run to him for grain without money, without price, and leave abundantly satisfied. I pray that all of us will end up worshiping and glorifying Jesus because of what he did for us to be satisfied. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.